0: Welcome to the New Books Network. This
1: is New Books to National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windisch. I'm joined by Dr. Eric J. Dahl, the author of The COVID-19 Intelligence Failure, Why Warning Was Not Enough. Eric J. Dahl is an associate professor of national security affairs at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, where he's also on the faculty of the Center for Homeland Defense and Security. His research and teaching focus on intelligence, terrorism, and international and homeland security, and he is the author of Intelligence and Surprise Attack, Failure and Success from Pearl Harbor to 9-11 and Beyond from Georgetown University Press. Today, we're speaking about his latest book, also from Georgetown University Press. He's retired from the U.S. Navy in 2002 after serving 21 years as an intelligence officer, and he received his Ph.D. from the Fletcher School of Tufts University. He's also a former chair of the Intelligence Studies section of the International Studies Association. Eric, welcome to the show.
2: Beth, it's great to be with you.
1: It's great to see you again after our time at CHDS. Thank you for coming on to talk about your latest book.
2: I love doing it. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You start the book with some really interesting dialogue around the concepts of health security, human security, and national security. Can you talk about why you started with defining those spaces and how do those help us understand if public health issues like pandemics are actually a national security concern?
2: Sure. In fact, I really did start out this whole project of what became the book by first trying to look at whether or not it was reasonable to argue as I do in the book uh, is it reasonable to argue that health security that a global pandemic for instance is something that national security officials and agencies should pay attention to is it something that is worth really my time for instance as a faculty member at the Naval Postgraduate School and a faculty member at the Center for Homeland Defense and Security is this something that, that is worth I looking at or is this something that we should really leave to medical experts and in fact I found as I got into the research for the book that that question kept coming up you know whose lane is this in because often I would talk to medical and public health experts who would tell me that you know, I'm glad to talk to you about this and good that you're doing a book on this but don't associate me with intelligence don't don't tell your readers that there is such a thing as medical intelligence because they'll think that we're associated with the CIA or something, and then I'd I'd go to my next uh, Zoom call or something. It's, all this research was done during the lockdown, essentially, and maybe I talk with an intelligence insider, a, a, a member of one of the uh, the three-letter agencies in the U.S. intelligence community, for instance, and that person would tell me, you know, hey, I'm glad to talk to you, but whatever you do, you know, don't uh, don't assume that the U.S. intelligence community really worries about and and handles medical and public health things. Glad to talk to you, but you know, this is not our problem. We're worried about China, Russia, those sorts of things. So right from the start, I had to deal with this question of kind of, you know, whose lane is this and is a public health issue really a national security crisis or a human security crisis? Any of those sorts of things.
1: And so what did you find out? Like, what is the role of intelligence in a pandemic? And how is that different than biosurveillance or some of these other medical-focused surveillance and tracking efforts that you detail?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I found that this is really everybody's problem. And in a way, I suppose that's a kind of a simple answer to come to. But but like I was suggesting, uh, that's in some ways a controversial answer because many folks on the different sides of this issue don't think uh, that that it should be considered uh, part of the problem. Uh, I think the reason why public health, why pandemics, infectious diseases, why they need to be considered national security problems and they need to be addressed more vigorously by the traditional intelligence agencies, I think that answer should be obvious to most of us that, for example, the covid 19 killed vastly more americans and more people around the world than wars ever do this is clearly something of national security concern but it's more than that obviously as well it it really fits into that human security uh, bucket that you mentioned earlier you know the concept of broadening the concerns about security to not just think about the traditional problems of war and peace as important as those are but maybe look at The way that we need to try to encourage security for all of us uh, in the world and in in our countries and that's human security but then the other the other part of it is medical public health intelligence and i do think that it's important and and many experts in those fields agree with me here too it i do think it's important that experts in medicine and public health also have connections to the traditional national security agencies Because just as an example, if we're ever going to get to sort of the bottom of where COVID-19 came from, and I'm not sure we ever will, and maybe we can talk about that more in a few minutes, but I'm pretty sure it's going to require all of the skills, all of the knowledge, and all the intelligence that both traditional intelligence agencies can provide and medical and public health experts and scientists can provide as well
1: so i want to there's so many things to dive into here but i wanted to ask you first kind of this principle question about intelligence in general there can be this impulse to constantly think if i have more information things will go better Um, i think that's one of the potential pitfalls of being a decision maker is that you are always looking to have all of the facts however we know that we're rarely going to have perfect facts to inform decisions and even high quality intelligence cannot overcome bad decision makers what are the limits of intelligence to solve problems like covid 19 or pandemics
2: well as you say there are a lot of issues involved here but what you're talking about there is one of the great areas where i believe there are lessons that can be learned uh, from, for instance, lessons from traditional national security intelligence, and those lessons apply to medical and public health uh, intelligence and surveillance experts as well. They're a big part of the reason why I wrote this book, and what I'm hoping that people will get out of it, is that I hope that a medicine, a medical expert, a public health expert, for instance, can read it And learn more about what traditional national security intelligence is all about and some of the lessons that we i come from that world some of the lessons that we've developed over generations and on the other hand i hope that more traditional students or practitioners of intelligence as we usually think of it national security intelligence international intelligence will read this and realize that there are there's a whole nother world whole nother worlds of intelligence surveillance out there that they need to learn more about And one of the lessons, for instance, that I think we clearly have learned in the traditional national security intelligence world, I used to teach about this when I was still on active duty in in the military, for instance. And that lesson is you have to realize that you may certainly have too much information, you may not have enough information, but whatever the case is, you're going to have to be able to make decisions even when the situation is uncertain. We train our rising military commanders to to live and breathe that. And we train our intelligence officers to understand that as well so that they can try to coordinate with operators, with operational commanders as closely as possible. And I think one of the problems that we saw in the intelligence surveillance, the assessment of COVID-19, especially in the early weeks and months, is that too many decision makers at all levels of government and society were waiting for that sort of perfect picture they were waiting to for instance see what the science says but as we all remember in too many cases the science was unclear was it is it a good thing to wear masks or not should schools be closed or not all these sorts of sorts of things and a lesson from traditional national security intelligence is is often you need to make a decision Make the best call you can and then, then go forward and adjust later and sometimes we hesitated too too much uh, in face of the pandemic you
1: talk about a number of medical and disease surveillance efforts to include programs at the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies that have some significant pitfalls. And you go through in detail to include um, oversight reports that have pointed out some of these in the public record right from either the Office of Inspector General or GAO about issues with information sharing or you know, the robustness of some of these efforts, how might a more robust intelligence involvement overcome some of these same pitfalls? Or are these just um, analogies of other um, fragmentation and other pieces of the intelligence community that have, I guess, kind of proliferated within the surveillance community? Um, What are your thoughts on some of those? pitfalls and and problems with existing surveillance efforts?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I think some of the problems that we've seen over the past number of years concerning uh, more uh, sort of nation state directed or terrorist involved biohazards, some of those problems are that we just haven't really gotten our act together across the US government, for instance, which is where most of my understanding comes from. <clears throat> and we need to see the pandemic as i think many experts most experts do but the pandemic really needs to be seen as a wake up call for the next kind of biological threat that will come down the pike we know that just about every expert out there in infectious diseases and in uh, bio uh, threats tells us that the next pandemic the next global pandemic may be even worse than covid 19 was and the next global health threat may not be another pandemic similar to or or another uh, modification uh, of the COVID-19 of the virus there it could be another kind of naturally occurring health threat or it could be the sort of threat that you were suggesting there it could be a human made biological organism or threat but the key point for intelligence and surveillance I believe is that many of the same tools can be applied to any of these kinds of problems and we found with covid-19 we found with the pandemic that we just don't have a system globally or in this country in the united states we don't have a system to gather information on the spread of such diseases effectively to pass that information to all the different levels of governments and society that need to to deal with it and be able to make decisions so no matter what the next kind of serious health threat that's going to arise, and all experts say it's going to come, we need to do a better job of intelligence and surveillance, and we need to do things such as be able to take into account civil liberties. You know, just the the problems in in this country, in the United States, and a number of other countries where many of us were resistant to using contact tracing tools. You know, in, in a perfect world, all of us today would be carrying around in our pocket a a disease tracking device our phones with with some version of a covid or other sort of infectious disease contact tracing tool that we would feel confident using that would have sufficient safe safeguards for civil liberties and yet would be able to tell us whether we've come in contact or Uh, likely come in contact with someone who has been exposed to some serious threat. That's just one example of how we weren't able to do a very good job of watching for detecting and gathering information on the threat of COVID-19. And I hope we can do better the next time.
1: So I want to touch on this a little bit more, what you just brought up. And I want to talk about how public health and infectious diseases are unique. And and you talk about this in your book. One area that I I wanna touch on is the securitization of infectious diseases and the implications for security having a larger role in public health. Um, But another piece of this, and you talk about this a little bit with your comment on the contact tracing, is that there is the potential for stigma and danger surrounding public health information, and in particular, we've seen in multiple situations or infectious disease kind of scenarios, the stigmatization of countries and identity groups that rightly or wrongly become associated with a particular pathogen or public health issue. Given the sensitivity of personal health information and the dangers of how health information can become the basis for prejudices and threats to safety of individuals, What is truly the appropriate role for an intelligence agency?
2: Well, that's a great point. And a couple of those issues that you mentioned do sort of come together. Uh, The first is this concept of securitization. That's the term that people use uh, usually as a negative term. And I talk about that in my book. And the concept of securitization means taking a problem in society and turning it into a security problem. Uh, And that often means using traditional tools of national security, such as intelligence, to deal with it. And many in this country and around the world are concerned about that, this problem of securitization, because many problems really don't lend themselves to using sort of the big stick of national security, often of the military. But on the other hand, as we saw in the United States, especially in the early weeks and months of COVID-19, there are things that the u.s military and that our traditional national security apparatus can do and should do so we need to be able to i think the first step is to have a good discussion about securitization and think about how we want to deal with threats such as infectious disease threats where are the areas that we don't think it's appropriate to use traditional national security assets and national security intelligence for instance, we, we don't want to use, in the United States, we don't want to use our traditional intelligence agencies to do domestic surveillance. In Israel, for instance, one of the interesting case studies of intelligence agencies uh, during the, the COVID pandemic was in Israel where Israeli intelligence agencies were used more widely uh, in the early days of the pandemic. But in the United States, we don't want to do that. That's not an area of securitization. and. The answer there in a sense the answer is to use traditional intelligence agencies as they are traditionally designed use them uh, to look at external issues for instance to try to understand what the thinking is in uh, governments around the, around the world look for non-state or state-run actors that might be developing or attempting to develop bio threats use the, the sorts of tools and capabilities that traditional intelligence communities and agencies have whereas the most important part of intelligence and surveillance when it comes to uh, biological threats to to pandemics to infectious disease those are the even broader system and many systems of intelligence and surveillance that belong to the medical and public health communities in the united states many of those under the overall uh, supervision auspices of the cdc but but not all of them by any means and around the world often uh, under the world health organization but again not not always so that's the the problem of securitization and we need to be able to have those discussions so that when the next potentially global pandemic arises or the next health threat arises we will be able to make a better trade-off a better choice of how to for instance conduct surveillance and one last thought on that as you mentioned. One of the issues that has often come up uh, in uh, an epidemic or an infectious disease problem, such as the uh, early years of HIV AIDS, we see uh, a sort of a trade-off or or a conflict here between on the one hand, the need to gather information on the spread of a disease, for instance, but on the other hand, the need to take into account the the privacy, the civil liberties, uh, the needs and concerns of the individuals who may have that disease. And we have a a good track record. Uh, We've got a history of being able to to make those decisions. And I think that what we need to do is just remember those those lessons and realize that uh, it's not just a question of gathering all the possible information you can, especially when you're gathering information on your own citizens. we need to take civil liberties, personal freedoms into account. And and I think there are better ways to do that. And we can do that in the future.
1: Thank you for the thoughtful response on that. And I know that it's not the main topic of your book, this um, kind of um, associated um, violence that we see sometimes with these types of pandemics or infectious diseases. But I'm curious if you have thoughts about the role of the intelligence community in thinking through these types of things. And the sometimes, um, how do I put this? The the role of the intelligence community in terms of looking at hate crimes or other associated acts of violence that have resulted from stigmas that again, rightly or wrongly um, are sometimes associated with certain public health issues and either identity groups or national origins Mm
2: -hmm. well i think that's a great example of how the more traditional intelligence or as you're talking about here law enforcement agencies those sorts of agencies and professionals need to have a good understanding of the systems that we have in place that can help us keep track of and, and assess the threat from infectious diseases that, as you say, often can end up being very politicized. Uh, We saw that, for instance, uh, about a year ago with the spread of monkeypox, as it was first called in the MPOX, that uh, those organizations uh, that were uh, keeping track of of the spread of MPOX needed to be aware uh, that that tended to be developing uh, in uh, gay communities, for instance. And you have to be aware of that. But then The more traditional law enforcement intelligence agencies also need to be aware of that because, as you say, there could be, whether you call it spillover violence uh, or uh, bigotry, and when it spills over into acts of bigotry, acts of violence, that can become then a more traditional law enforcement issue. And so that's why we need to be working together, and that that's why we all we're all sort of in this together, even though we have different lanes in the road.
1: So you mentioned in um, earlier that other countries, and you talk about this in the book, had different responses to both contact tracing response, um, how they mobilized in response to COVID nineteen. Can you talk a little bit about some of the highlights in terms of Specifics to intelligence and what you think the US could have done better or potentially learned from other countries or areas where the US maybe could um, provide additional lessons learned.
2: Yes. You know, one of the things I tried to do was look for case studies, examples of success, success in dealing with the COVID crisis. And I described some local level, local and state level successes in the US, for instance. And then around the world, as as I think most of us are are aware that, for instance, a number of countries in Asia were among the quickest to react to the development of and the spread of COVID-19. And that was largely because in countries such as in Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, uh, there are a number of factors that, that came together to encourage quick response. One is the physical proximity to China, where the disease was coming from, and that's certainly a big part of it but also because as many of us know uh, many Asian countries are more used to taking steps such as wearing masks when you're sick I've been stationed uh, in Japan and South Korea and stationed uh, in Asia a number of times during my military career and you're just used to seeing people wearing masks on the subway and and so it was much easier to then uh, adapt that and just uh, increase the, the wearing of masks but it was more than that too because A number of the countries in Asia had more direct experience in recent years with outbreaks of of epidemics and pandemics. And, you know, that's another one of the lessons from traditional national security intelligence, which is kind of a it's kind of a a problem, in fact. And that is that we may not, as human beings, be able to deal with a threat that we've never seen before. That was one of the comments that some experts made after 9-11 that that looking at the the 9-11 terrorist attacks after the fact it certainly seems easy to look at it and figure well why didn't why didn't senior leaders see it coming why didn't they take better precautions because we had lots of people richard clark in the white house and others warning about the threat of international terrorism and al-qaeda but as a number of experts pointed out after 9-11 nobody had ever seen a threat such as on 9-11. Nobody had ever seen a combined, a a coordinated terrorist attack using airplanes uh, against public buildings that way. And much the same way, none of us at the outbreak of COVID-19, none of us, very few in the world, had been alive 100 years before uh, for the 1918 global flu pandemic. And so it was very hard for many of us to even imagine How serious a threat that could be but in a number of those asian countries they had had more serious uh, episodes and experiences with sars and other uh, outbreaks and they were ready to to take action and that gets to back to that point i was making earlier that so often we have found in the traditional national security world you've got to act you've got to do something and then adjust later on if necessary and in too many countries around the world in in too much of the United States, our leaders, even down to the county level, including national level, we're, we're waiting, we're just waiting to to see, for instance, what the science says, and, and that was not a helpful response.
1: I think a lot of us who had either friends or peers or colleagues who had dealt with SARS had really that psychological impact of going through that that um, I remember as this was unfolding, folks who had who had lived through that and had personal experience with it had a very different response at the beginning of COVID 19 and maybe that is from some of that lived experience. And it's interesting because you talk about this some in your book and it's difficult, how do we overcome the psychological biases that impede our efforts to respond effectively to risk you mentioned h1n1 and the response here so even in the US, we had seen on a smaller level, we had heard for years that a pandemic was coming, but it was still difficult to get acceptance of the facts and the risk associated with the pandemic when it arrived. And it's not just infectious diseases that we have these problems with these psychological biases related to risk. Um, How do we overcome them? And do you think that the H1N1, I think you described um, some of the over, maybe overreaction on some of that. I think you characterized it that way. Could that have contributed? Or, or what are your thoughts on the on the psychological part and how we overcome that?
2: Well, there's probably no way to completely overcome problems such as that. But again, I look back to lessons that we have learned over experience, over time, uh, in the traditional national security realm, where we've learned that educating our leaders especially our rising leaders about how to use intelligence and warning how to ask for how to demand better intelligence and better warning uh, and then be ready to make tough decisions when necessary we need to be able to make similar decisions on the, the medical and public health side and part of what we're talking about here gets to the distinction that i make in the book between what you might call strategic warning and strategic intelligence and then tactical warning tactical intelligence and for instance many experts that I've talked to disagree with my overall take on intelligence and the pandemic I believe very strongly that the COVID-19 pandemic was a major intelligence failure around the world but many experts argue that it wasn't an intelligence failure at all because after all as again as I talk about in the book many leaders in the intelligence community in the United States and elsewhere and many medical and public health leaders have been warning for years about the threat of a global pandemic so how could it possibly be considered an intelligence failure when intelligence experts on all sides of the problem have been telling us that this kind of a threat was coming and my answer is well it's that partly there's a a puzzle here or a paradox and that's really the paradox I started Trying to figure out in my book, how was it possible that the years, even decades of warning about a global pandemic, weren't enough to better prepare the United States and the rest of the world? And the answer is that what decision makers need is not just this sort of big picture, what we call in the traditional world of intelligence strategic warning. It's not enough to have national intelligence leaders warn, for instance, in testimony in Congress, as they have done for years and years that one of the risks we face as a country and as a as a human civilization is a global pandemic that's not enough what you need is to develop systems to be watching for the threats that you are concerned about and when those threats actually arise you need systems that will collect information collect that intelligence provide an assessment and in as near real time as possible allow decision makers whether they are national leaders or when it comes to public health typically county public health officers in the united states to allow those leaders to make the best decisions they can when there is is good data and that's where we didn't have the kinds of intelligence and warning we need and that's why i call covid 19 a global intelligence failure and just one one example there was that as we all remember early on in, in the COVID crisis There was nobody in the United States government that had the ability or even really had the job to develop what we might call a COVID dashboard to collect data from all around the country on near real-time basis uh, on the number of outbreaks, hospitalizations, deaths, all those those key pieces of data that we needed, and put that together in a single place. The the sort of thing that you could call a COVID-19 dashboard. And ultimately, it was Johns Hopkins University that had to step in and do that and that showed a real failure it it really was an example sort of the tip of the iceberg of the failure of the U.S. government to be able to collect that data assess that data and provide it in a usable fashion and that is what intelligence does or should have done in the case of the COVID pandemic
0: Slash NBN50 to get 50% off.
1: Within your analysis on this, you talk about the public health intelligence cycle. And as you're discussing this global failure, this intelligence failure, and the difference between that strategic and tactical um, type of information. I I wonder, and I wondered as I was reading this, one, your point about information needing to be actionable makes all the sense in the world, because without being able to do something about the information you're given, it's just more threats that are being thrown at you. So from a a decision-maker perspective, actionable intelligence, it makes all the sense in the world. But when I look at the intelligence cycle, to me, one of the missing pieces is... For some of these things to be actionable, we have to have a public health infrastructure that is able to perform those actions. And so I wonder if investments in public health infrastructure are more valuable than intelligence investments, if you had to make those trade-offs to a decision-maker how would you justify investments in intelligence over public health infrastructure?
2: Well, that's a great point. And in my book, I'm arguing, I'm trying to argue strongly that the most important area of intelligence and surveillance and threat assessment when it comes to health threats such as pandemics, the most important area is in public health and in medicine. And that is certainly where we need to put most of the effort, most of the money, that might be available to deal with this problem here in the United States. Relatively, uh, the amount of money that would be needed in the more traditional national intelligence community to increase the focus on disease and health threats, that's relatively small compared to what we need to do. As you say, public health, it's it's just a sort of a second thought, an afterthought in, in American society and even what i'm really worried about is that even now after three years of the covid pandemic and as you and i are talking now uh, the the government in the united states and the world health organizations and others are declaring that we're moving on beyond the state of emergency but we, we have to learn the lessons from covid from the last three plus years and one of those biggest lessons is much beyond intelligence it's that public health needs to be much more invested in in the United States here and that certainly is not an area that I'm an expert in but I've spoken with with many many experts uh, and they all agree that we need and of course that's the world they live in but we need to increase our investment in public health and just as one example still today much of the data much of the effort that is conducted concerning public health around the in the United States is, as we now know, uh, conducted on the county level. And that's a, a good thing. We have local authorities making decisions about communities. But the problem is that still today we don't have good systems in place to be able to share that data and take into account civil liberties, personal freedoms, issues where they might might apply. Still today, uh, we just don't have a way to be able to really on a, on a quick sort of near real time basis, look at the, uh, the landscape of the entire United States and get a feel for uh, where uh, a particular disease or pathogen is, is spreading. And we need to do a much better job of that.
1: So asking you to put on your your professor hat in your role as an educator you talk about, we need to learn these lessons. What do you think are the core competencies in public health for intelligence professionals, maybe specifically, or national security professionals writ large?
2: Well, I think a big part of what I'm trying to get across to the public health world, and I'll, I'll tell you, you know, I have learned so much during the, my research for this book, as all of us have during living through three years of the pandemic but one of the the points that I learned very early on was that uh, you can't sort of mix the two public health and and medicine and you're not doing that but I started out doing that a little bit I remember I was talking to an MD uh about some of these issues and I I mentioned you know I'd like to get your thoughts on how we can improve our our public health infrastructure and that that medical doctor informed me. well you know that that's something you need to talk to a public health expert uh, about and and I'm here to talk about the the science and the, the medicine of that and we need to keep those those sorts of things straight but all of these different communities whether it's medicine public health traditional intelligence we need to realize that we've got to work together on these and I'll just come back to uh, one quick vignette in fact from a number of years ago when I was teaching a course on homeland security intelligence at the center for homeland defense and security in fact that's where you and i met a few years later after this and i was teaching my course and even then this was several years before covid but uh, i talked briefly uh, about public health and public health intelligence and i i noticed late in the course we've been going through uh, the course uh, most of it had gone by already but one of the students in the back of the room didn't seem very Interested in what was going on, and so I just kind of asked, you know, say, you know, how, what, what's up? Uh, can we uh, do something to get you more engaged? And that student spoke up from the back of the room. You've you've been in that classroom, Beth, uh, in back of the room, and and uh, and he said, well, no, nothing to worry about really. But you see, I'm a public health professional, and this course on intelligence for homeland security doesn't apply to me, so that's why I'm I'm not paying attention. But you just carry on. And I thought to myself, "Aha! This could be a teaching moment. You know, this is this is what I'm I'm here for." So I asked that student, that public health professional. I said, "Well, let me ask you this: uh, In your field of public health, is part of your job to gather information, gather data uh, from lots of different places?" And he kind of looked at me and, and and kind of looked around the rest of the classroom and said, "Well, duh! Of course, that's what public health does." And I said, "Aha! Okay." and tell me this uh do you then take that information and try to put it together in some sort of a, an assessment something you might call a, a threat assessment and maybe pass it on to officials who might be able to do something with it and he said of course that is what public health and and epidemiology is all about and so I said aha and here's where I zoomed in for what I thought would be the the kill and I'd get him on my side I said well you see what you're talking about is what we've been talking about in this class about the intelligence cycle how we how we do the business of intelligence and doesn't it make sense to you that what we're talking about in the class applies directly to what you do for a living every day and I thought that he would you know be be applauding and, and he'd be a, a fan of the course from then on but <laughs> instead he just said no I don't think so and he went back to to typing on his laptop So, unfortunately, I wasn't able to bring him along. uh, But I'll tell you, when a couple of years later, after that, when COVID 19 developed, I, I certainly felt as if at least I had been trying to do the right thing as an educator, as a teacher, trying to get all of us to sort of open our minds a little bit so that if you're on the public health side, you realize that there are lessons from the intelligence side, the traditional intelligence side, and vice versa. And that's what I'm really trying to do in this book and what I'm trying to do in my classes and every time I get a chance to to talk to an audience such as uh, by chatting with you here.
1: I'm just going to put a disclaimer that that did not happen in the class that I was in but we were fortunate enough to have your class in person because we unfortunately had to go virtual due to the COVID-19 epidemic for the last part of our, of our um, coursework but um, yeah I think that maybe you were ahead of your time on some of those those things that people are are definitely learning now we we've talked about a number of the case studies you talk about previous pandemics in the book about kind of lessons learned from that we've talked about SARS we mentioned H1N1 and i wanted to just get your Thoughts on the key lessons from the the most recent Ebola outbreak. Because I think that in some ways, um, I never want to say one type of 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 outbreak is more or less concerning because obviously any loss of life and and COVID-19 itself has had a tremendous loss of life and impact on those who have who have um come down with that. But I think that Ebola presents different different calculations just due to the type of infectious disease and the um, ease of transmission. And it's interesting where you talk about that case study because ultimately with all public health issues, some of the decisions come down to border security, closing of borders, public health measures. And in Ebola, we had a bit of a different approach. So would love to hear kind of the main takeaways you saw from that case study and how they may contrast with some of the other the other ones in the book
2: well that that's a great point and in the book i do have sort of many case studies of past examples of epidemics and pandemics and how intelligence and warning was either successful or, or not successful and just uh real quick to mention that in the case of ebola actually that was uh, an example of where u.s intelligence agencies the more traditional national security intelligence agencies provided a great deal of assistance and so it was a great example of how those different communities can sort of work work with each other the national geospatial intelligence agency for instance we call it nga and that's the main u.s intelligence agency that does things like a mapping of the earth and providing uh mapping data to military and national security forces Uh, But they provided a great deal of support on the ground in Africa to first responders to non-governmental organizations, providing mapping data, that sort of thing. And even the fabled 101st Airborne Division of the U.S. Army was able to provide support in Africa by sending uh, people there who could could help those non-governmental organizations and the health and aid uh, organizations uh, to get their job done not, not certainly by any means taking over the mission of NGOs and aid organizations, but assisting where they can. And so it's a, a great example in that way of how the traditional national security organizations can help. But you were also mentioning, I think, uh, that one of the the real difficult challenges and questions uh, whenever a, a pandemic arises, whenever, whenever there is a an international threat of infectious disease that gets this question of should you is it appropriate to try to close down borders and of course that's typically the uh, sort of a first reaction of, of many countries to try to try to sort of protect themselves uh, against being exposed to some sort of a pathogen and I have to say this is getting beyond sort of my Area of expertise in the intelligence and surveillance world, but it, it does apply to the problem of intelligence and surveillance. Because if you are sort of cutting yourself off from other, other countries, it can be harder to gather that data that you need to be able to track uh, the, the flow. But I think one of the lessons from the most recent pandemic here uh, is, as we all saw, we all live through this, that in in the modern world you can't close off countries you you can't close yourself off from the rest of the world I don't think that there has been a a country or or even a, a major chunk of of the planet that hasn't been affected and infected by COVID-19. there are things that one can do things that a country can do such as to uh, be much more careful with air travel and and uh being able to use disease surveillance tools in the early days to try to flatten the curve as we remember that that phrase but I think one of the lessons from the pandemic is that as as I put it in the book you know Tom Friedman I think is the one who put it first you know the world is flat and when it comes to threats such as infectious diseases that means those threats can get at us much more quickly than they ever could before and we all need to work together so that's pointing out why Dealing with the problems of infectious disease is a global problem, and that's why I call it a global intelligence failure. It's not a it was not an intelligence failure of U.S. intelligence of, of U.S. leadership or any other given country. It was it was a, a global, worldwide problem.
1: So I wanted to touch on some of the recommendations that you make for what. We should do going forward, and one of them that you suggest is a potential Covid-19 Commission, much like the 9-11 Commission. Why do you think this is important, and what would you hope a commission like that might achieve?
2: Well, I think we really need something like that, just as we did with the 9-11 Commission to try to sort to uh tell the story of COVID-19 and what happened and where we need to go in the future, just like the 9-11 Commission did. But unfortunately, the the problem of, of COVID, the problem of infectious disease is too politicized. I don't think that we're ever going to be able to, to do that. And so I think that's a real shame. I do think that efforts such as mine, other think tanks, and other studies been reporting out just in the last couple of months and the last year or so, I think there are ways that we are trying to Learn and understand the lessons learned from COVID, but unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to be able to here in the United States sort of get our arms around the problem, because these issues are just too politicized.
1: That answer kind of makes me sad. <laughs> You're usually a lot more optimistic than that. I uh, well, I got well, to out how to recover.
2: Well, let me let me tell you, Beth. There, I, I like to to say that my. My book uh, does sort of three things. First, I I tell the story from an intelligence and warning perspective of what happened in the, the COVID crisis and why it was an intelligence and a warning failure. Then second, I talk about, toward the end of the book, about how the lessons from COVID for intelligence, warning, threat assessment, how we can try to apply those to other threats that we as humans, we as citizens of our countries, uh, are dealing with and there's there's bad news there, unfortunately, so I'll get but I'll get over the bad news in just a second. The bad news is that as experts tell us, we face so many other kinds of threats today, intelligence the traditional intelligence experts have been saying for years now that here in this country, the United States and around the world, we are facing a more challenging situation today than we ever have. and often experts say that There are really only three kinds of things that can pose existential threats to humanity. And global pandemics, health threats, that's one of them. Another is, as you can imagine, nuclear weapons. And then the third, climate change, global warming, uh, and all the different kinds of problems that are rising from that. So we face a, a very threatening world here at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey. Most of my students are actually active duty military officers from the navy and other services and our allied nations and they're struggling with the problems right now of what we call great power competition of course and russia china all that that's the bad news that there are even more threats beyond the threat of the next pandemic which may be even worse than the last one but then finally there's good news and the good news is that i strongly believe the lessons for intelligence and warning that we saw during the three years the last three years of the pandemic those lessons can be applied to those other kinds of threats as well all those different kinds of threats that we as human beings face they're very different lots of different ways some are state-based threats some are non-state actors some are our natural occurrences although my my uh, homeland security and emergency management uh colleagues often like to to say that there's no such thing as a natural disaster that human beings have a role in everything and that's true but nonetheless there are many different kinds of threats out there but the lessons for intelligence and warning that we need to learn from the covid pandemic those apply no matter what the threat is and those are lessons such as that we need to understand how sometimes intelligence and warning needs to do a better job that it's not enough to just sort of pass on these big picture strategic warnings that well bad things might happen someday we need to develop systems that are in place that typically cost a lot of money that will watch for that actionable intelligence we were talking about earlier That can watch for actual signs of what we might call tactical intelligence tactical warning in the more traditional national security side signs that whatever the problem is you're worried about that problem is actually arising in in country x because the covid pandemic showed us that the next global threat the next challenge that can kill millions of people around the world could arise for instance from a, a huge city in china that, that many of us didn't know anything about it could arise in many other places we need to work together we need to work not just as individual nations but we've got to have international efforts to do better for instance with global disease surveillance but also to watch for all these other kinds of threats so those lessons that we can learn from the last three years of dealing with covid 19 can help us deal with the other kinds of threats that we all are going to be facing in the coming years and that i think is good news that's really something that we can take away from the COVID pandemic and help apply it to the future
1: we may never fully understand or have all of the information on the origin of COVID-19 and as you talk about the role of intelligence and great power competition but also we have significant issues with information and misinformation how important is it for us to understand how COVID-19 began, and what is the role of some of those narratives in other larger um, potential campaigns of mismal disinformation?
2: And that's a great question. And of course, as we're talking today, we, we still don't know. We, the world, we still don't know. Our U.S. intelligence agencies don't know just where COVID-19 originated, and that is one of these issues that has become so politicized it's it's difficult to even talk about it to have an educated discussion but we need to continue to talk about and have that discussion i think and again this is definitely not my area of expertise but the experts that i listen to on these issues they tell us that it's important to try to find just where that originated whether it originated from a, a chinese the, the biology lab in wuhan or did it have a Uh, natural origin in that market. That's important, but that's not actually the most important thing because no matter what the source of the coronavirus in this case was, the ways to deal with it are the same. We need to be able to develop our systems to both internationally and nationally to be able to detect such threats earlier than we did last time. And for instance, that does demand international cooperation. But I will say that The question of the origins of the virus is such a a, an example a prime example of how we need both traditional national security intelligence agencies and capabilities and scientific public health medical intelligence surveillance and capabilities if we're ever going to get to the bottom of of where that virus originated it's going to take all of those tools because for instance our traditional three-letter agencies of the U.S. government might be able to to develop uh, some sort of source whether it's from signals intelligence or human intelligence or something that could tell us something uh, that our medical and public health and scientific capabilities don't tell us and and vice versa so that's just a great example of how we need to all work together to deal with these these sorts of sorts of problems
1: You have a section in the book where you very succinctly explain how the intelligence community works, the role of the different agencies. It's less than 10 pages. You just really boil it down to this is what different folks do. A lot of people don't have a great understanding, especially outside of the national security community, of what the intelligence community actually does if you, um, as someone with an extensive career, both in practice and in research, were to try to sell your average American on why they should share information about their public health information with a national security agency, how would you convince someone of that?
2: Well, the first thing I'll say is that actually I'm not looking for I'm not arguing uh, that American citizens or citizens of of any country should share their health information with those traditional National Security intelligence agencies that's one of the big misconceptions out there and I think that's a big part of the reason why as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago many of the public health and medical experts that I talked to in researching this book those experts told me they don't want to have anything to do with intelligence well but actually they do of course they want to have to do what they do with public health surveillance epidemiology but not the the intelligence when it's the three-letter agencies in Washington and so that's an important point that I think we all need to learn and part of what I like to do in my teaching and my writing and public speaking is to try to help citizens uh, Americans uh, everyone understand how intelligence works even if you may not have had any experience with that, even if you don't have a military background or worked for the US government. And the reason why I think it's important that we all have a better understanding of intelligence is, is first of all, because there are so many misconceptions that as you say, misinformation, disinformation, much more common nowadays than it ever used to be. But at the same time, intelligence is fundamentally, and here I'm talking about traditional national security intelligence, intelligence is a fundamental role of government it's one of the jobs that our government in the united states does needs to do and needs to continue to do we spend a lot of our taxpayer money on intelligence again on the traditional national security intelligence side the the figures that the intelligence community puts out something like 80 80 to 90 billion dollars a year spent on intelligence that's a lot of money and it's important that american citizens taxpayers and American leaders, for instance, on the Hill, have a better understanding of where that money goes and how we're using intelligence and how to oversee intelligence so that it can do even better. So that's why I think it's important that we all understand how intelligence works, and that's part of what I hope my book can do, tell and help educate public health, medical practitioners, students, not in the traditional national security world, help them understand how intelligence works, But at the same time, I hope my book can help students or practitioners in the more traditional national security and intelligence world, maybe somebody studying traditional intelligence, help them understand how the medical, public health, sort of the non-traditional intelligence areas work because we all have to work together if we're going to deal with these problems that we all face in the future.
1: Well, thank you so much. We have taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, can I ask what you're working on next?
2: Well, sure. Thanks. And let me just say, I really enjoyed talking with you, Beth, but one of the questions that, that is now really sort of engaging me and a lot of what I do, and you remember this, I'm sure from from when we're together in the classroom uh, is to try to look at a puzzle sort of a if there's a puzzle out there I want to try to figure out what the answer is and right now I'm interested in an even broader question maybe about intelligence which is how is it that at least in the United States the American intelligence community doesn't seem to be doing a better job today than it did in the past even though we have so many more tools and capabilities in the traditional intelligence or law enforcement intelligence. In fact, we have so many ways to to surveil citizens today that, that people are rightly worried about civil liberties, personal freedoms. But how is it possible that even with all those new tools and capabilities, social media intelligence, big data, algorithms, everything else, predictive policing, how is it possible that we still seem to not be able to figure out what the next threat to come down the road is and on our so much of my teaching and thinking is about homeland security as as you know how is it possible that we're not able to do a better job in this country of helping to prevent mass shootings how can we not use data better that's really the problem that that i'm trying to struggle with right now and maybe that'll be my next book uh, a few years from now
1: Well, hopefully we'll get to talk more then, and good luck with your work, and thank you for being on the show
2: today. Thank you.
1: The COVID-19 Intelligence Failure, Why Warning Was Not Enough by Eric J. Dahl is available now from Georgetown University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.